Jewish Money Matters, episode 238. Joe Sal and Emily Guy Birkin, authors of Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. How would you like to add a little fun to your money management? Some gamification, perhaps? My guests say this is much needed. I couldn't agree more. Some good old incentives to get things done and a little laughter at our, at our past mistakes. I mean, those things can really get us far. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. I have Joe Saul Sihai and Emily Guy Birkin, authors of the newly released book, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management. Joe Saul Sihai is the creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast and Money with Friends podcast. He worked as a financial advisor for 16 years and represented American Express and Ameriprise in the media. He was the money man at Detroit Television, appearing twice weekly. He's appeared in hundreds of media outlets, Bride, Best Life, the LA Times, Chicago Sun-Times, Detroit News, Baltimore Sun, CNBC.com, and WallStreetJournal.com, among many, many others. Emily Guy Birkin is a Plotus Award-winning freelance writer who specializes in the scientific research behind irrational money behaviors. She makes complex financial topics relatable and easily understood by the layperson. She's the author of five books, including The Five Years Before You Retire, End Financial Stress Now, and the brand new book, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management, which we talk about today. As you just heard, Joe and Emily have both been authorities in the personal finance space for many, many years. And so I asked them what was missing in the conversation, what needed to be said that hadn't been said before. What about the personal finance fundamentals? Are we done with those? Are there things that are outdated? What stays true? What should be getting a refresh? Also, from their perspective, what's one thing that's really going to move the needle when it comes to wealth building that we should all be concentrating on more? And if you've ever wondered, how in the world do I hire a financial advisor? What do I look out for? And is it even for me at this stage of my life? Joe and Emily have very useful tips. The role of giving, as you know, we like to talk about that on the show. And of course, we had to laugh at their money blunders because we're taking this money stuff super seriously, especially when you're hanging out with Emily and Joe. And we want you to do too. Ready for a good laugh? I hope you are because here's Joe Salcihai and Emily Guy Birkin. Emily Guy Birkin and Joel Salcihai. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's so exciting to have you on the show. How are you? Doing Fantastic. Great. Glad to be here. It must be my lucky day. I mean, I'm like so selfish. I do this for my audience, but I get to hang out with you guys and learn from you. This is like, I have like, t- I'm feeling totally selfish. No, are you can We get to hang out with you. The key yeah, is we get yeah. to hang out with you. That's the better thing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I bragged about you in the introduction and you guys have had so many years years of personal finance experience under your belt. And now you've come out with this incredibly fun new book, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Money, Modern Money Management. 
I think I bet you it's anything but super serious. <laughs> Tell us, Emily and Joe, why this book and why now? What hadn't been said that you both felt needed to be said already, or perhaps it needed to be said in a different way? <laughs> But the, the project definitely started with me and uh, with my podcast, Stacking Benjamins. We've been for a decade interviewing authors for 10 years. And, and the thing that has always been frustrating, as, as you know, is creators always say, well, isn't this field saturated? Aren't there too many people? And the answer is no. We need more. We need more people that are different voices that are bringing out unique points of view. And I read this statistic in this, uh, this piece by a group called nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful piece called The Secret Financial Lives of Americans and goes over some pretty troubling statistics. But one is that over 150 million people people in America report that they've cried about their money, 150 million. And you'd think, by the way, that that's people that are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, like I was back in the early nineties, that it's people struggling on a daily basis. And while that's true, nearly half of people that earn over $250,000 a year or more also report that they cry about their money. Mm -hmm. So we're clearly still leaving people behind. I think we need to have some very important conversations, but I feel like the the way to get there. I've interviewed a lot of great authors with some really important books. Our mutual friend, Farnoosh Tarabi, is one person who's written some fantastic books. Yes. Um, but, but, but lightening it up, I feel like, is a way that I don't see enough people being reached. So I was at a, I was at a, uh, at a great bookstore in Portland, Oregon called uh, Powell's. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful place. It's like a block long. It's this great place to get lost. And I am wandering around and I'm getting all of these uh, great creative ideas and not even from financial books, just from, you know, these synapses firing, depending on where I was at. And I I made it to the kids section, which Emily knows is totally me. And I saw this book called The Hardy Boys Detective Manual, which when I was in fourth grade, I carried around this Hardy Boys book all the time, my brother and I, and we would, and it was written with the help, by the way, of a real live uh, former detective, an FBI agent. And so this book was legit, but it was so campy. I mean, my brother and I, we'd go out on a rainy day and we'd look at my dad's tire tracks as he left for work. My mom would touch a door handle and we're over there with the tape, get mom's fingerprints, you know? So, and I just thought if there were a book that were a little bit campy, but presented things in that kind of fun way, but it was for adults about money, that would be good. So that was the germ. I flew back. I was living in Detroit at the time. I flew back to Detroit and my mom had actually left a bunch of stuff on the, on, on the t- kitchen table for us that had been in her attic. I was turning 50 years old, by the way, and mom's <laughs> finally trusting me with this stuff from the attic. And one of the things was the Cub Scout Wolf Guide was in this, in this box. And I, I wasn't in Scouts for a long time, but what's cool is, you know, we all talk all the time about gamification, yes. and about if you turn this into a game, it makes it so much easier and more fun. And Cub Scouts and Girl Scouts got that so great. They did it so well, way before all these finance apps that are doing it now. They told you succinctly what you needed to do to get a badge. It's not a chapter. It's a badge. Mm-hmm. They told you succinctly what you need to do. They told you what tools you'd need at the bottom. You had to check some boxes to show that you did stuff because it's not about what you know. It's about what you do. And then there was a place for your mom to sign it. So you get a badge. (laughs) And I thought, how cool would that be? And that was that was how Stacked was born. So it is a guide. And it's obviously very super serious. It starts off with the fundamentals of 
basic personal finance, how to get your act together, where to begin, how to get a budget together. What about your credit, getting out of debt, and then building a stack of Benjamins, the basics of investing, Mm -hmm. and then protecting your Benjamins. How do we protect all the stuff we have? Insurance companies want you to talk about insurance. I'm not a fan of talking about insurance. I'm a, I'm a fan of talking risk management because mm-hmm. sometimes it's insurance and as you know, sometimes it's not. And then the, the, the latter piece of the book is much more for money nerds because it's how to build stacks on top of your stacks of Benjamins. So. I- I, I I love this. And I, 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 I think it's so needed. You know, so often we talk about the mindset piece. You both mm-hmm. know this, right? <clears throat> like, evidently, we ha- we sort of all know what to do, or at least we know that whatever we don't know, we should ask. And yet we don't ask the questions, right? And we have mm-hmm. limiting beliefs and money blocks and all sort of garbage in our mind that holds us back from taking the action. I love the sound of this, because sometimes what we really need, I mean, you can do all the mindset work, but sometimes just a little fun and, 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 and like making it a little lighter and having like that incentive, um, to get, get, get us moving. Cause you can't really change the mindset unless you're taking the action. Like they go hand in hand. And sometimes mm-hmm. we forget that piece. That's uh, one thing. One of the reasons why I was really drawn to this project when, when Joe pitched it to me, he likes to say like, he thought I was going to hang up on him. When I was like- sure she was going to hang up. <laughs> But I was all in uh, from the beginning and partially because as we were talking before we started uh, recording, um, it meant I had an opportunity to be creative and funny in a way that mm-hmm. I don't often get when writing about money. Um, because often my clients, they just, they just the facts, get it straight. Um, you know, I try to be reassuring and gentle in my tone, but I don't often get a chance to be funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, uh, I had written several books prior to uh, Stacked. The one right before Stacked uh, that I wrote was called End Financial Stress Now. And that was a um, labor of love. It was a book I had been thinking about for like 10 years when I finally got a chance to write it. Uh, and it was very much about helping people um, overcome those limiting mindsets and helping people recognize the way that they are causing, um, I don't want to say causing themselves because that, that sounds blaming, but um, the, there's a lot of stress that they're holding on to about money that is unnecessary and then they can let go of. And so I had a friend who um, she had uh, bought my books, you know, to, to uh, um, support me, but she told me um, privately I'm nervous. I'm scared to read in financial stress now. And I was like, Oh my goodness, why? You know, cause my, my entire reason for writing it was to help people feel better. And she's like, I'm afraid it's going to tell me I'm doing things wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid what it's going to mean about money. And um, that made me realize like, even if you're coming at things from this place of reassurance and no shame, no blame, you're still going to have people who are like, nervous about picking up a book about money because their their inner monologue is telling them they're bad with money or yes. that it's just going to reinforce that they've made mistakes. Uh, and so with Joe offering me this opportunity to write a book that is not only going to provide the necessary information, but do it in a way that is fun and reassuring and lighthearted and shares our own mistakes so that we're not sitting like we're up on high on the mountain saying like we've done it all perfectly um, is going to uh, catch a lot more people who would otherwise never pick up a book about money. I love it. And it reminds me, we're three Jewish individuals here sitting in this virtual room of ours, but it really reminds me of those stories in the Talmud where you hear about the great sages opening their lectures with jokes because and the, the intent was to open the minds of the students, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's so important. I love all that. Now, 
Joe mentioned the fundamentals. So before we, I do want to get to all of our failures because I have my share of them so that everybody <laughs> in the audience knows that we're right there with you people. <laughs> we're not preaching, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to all help each other and grow. But before that, I want to talk about fundamentals, guys, because, you know, there's all the fundamentals of budgeting and the spending less than what you make, pay yourself first, don't get into credit card debt, max out your retirement contributions, all that stuff, right? My question to you guys is from your experience, um, is there, are there any of these that are quote unquote outdated or that there is a more modern approach to these fundamentals? Like what are we throwing out the window of anything? What are we keeping? What are we refreshing or modernizing? Uh, you know, I, I think that there's a reason why they are fundamentals, um, you know, because they, they are uh, the same rules that our great grandmothers used to, to make sure that um, they had enough money to, you know, get what they needed um, for it to put food on the table, to keep their kids clothed are going to work. Now the, the difference is that our, our money lives are more complex. Hmm. So back then you, the only option you had was to do like the envelope method for, for budgeting because you, you paid for things in cash. I mean, yes, there were stores that, uh, that allowed you to, to um, build up credit. um, But that was about it. And so, you know, you'd, you'd have to keep the logbook by hand and things like that. Whereas now there are so many ways to pay. Like you, you've got the, the you've got credit cards, you've got some, you know, uh, Venmo, you've got uh, um, touchless apps that, uh, you know, you zap it. You can, you can spend $300 while you're in the bath. Yes. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of amazing. The uh, huge number of ways that we can screw up with money without even leaving the house or getting out of our pajamas, mm-hmm. um, which is not, you can also invest while you're in the bath. <laughs> That's right. That too. You can, you can make, uh, you can make good decisions too, um, which are uh, granted our great grandmothers couldn't do. So I think the, the big difference between the fundamentals from, uh, you know, a hundred years ago and the fundamentals now is that we need to put different guardrails around our, our decisions, um, mm-hmm. because there are more options available to us. Um, and so more options is, can be a good thing. Cause it means that yes, you, you can, you can invest from the bath. Um, but that also means that you can, you know, uh, I don't know, buy, you know, a Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> <laughs> recreation, um, uh, like a uh, ship that sits in your, in your living room and does nothing from the bath. And, you know, this is not, not something you would do if you weren't just in the modern age, in the modern age. Yeah. So, and so those are the, um, that's the thing that I think is, is really important about, um, uh, modern money management is recognizing the, um, the, having more options means you're going to be need more guardrails and be more um, uh, intentional about putting those guardrails up around your decisions. I think an outdated, an outdated thing that people told us for a long time is that it takes discipline. Mm -hmm. And, and while discipline, I think can be a huge win for you. I don't think, I don't think you, I don't think that's the win. I think behavioral economics, especially a lot of the studies we've seen the past 10 years have taught us that it's much more about automation, about when you discover something, put that on autopilot, spend your time dealing with these big things. How do I advance my career? What am I doing with my family? What are my values? Where do I want to go and leave these $5 decisions, you know, to somebody else? We thought we'd get ahead clipping coupons and now we know that's not 
accurate. But what we do know is that now I have apps like, and I'll just name one, like Honey as an example, or I've got uh, Capital One uh, uh, shopping app where I don't even I don't even think about coupons, but man, I go to a site, all of a sudden my Honey app tells me that I can save money mm-hmm. and it's automated. So finding these automatic solutions to take care of the $1, $2, $3 problems so we can deal with the $100 problems, I think that's the most modern piece. And one one more thing, something I don't think is modern that a lot of people do and we've been asked a lot about with this book is about crypto and about NFTs. And that seems to be very modern. There's always been a new, new thing. Mm -hmm. Crypto and NFTs are the latest new, new thing. And will, will they change knowing the fundamentals? No, you still have to know where they fit. You still have to know whether it makes sense for your portfolio or not. But for us, modern money is not so much about crypto NFTs as it is about automating as much as you possibly can. Yes. Joe and I are old enough to remember pets.com. So I am too. <laughs> We've been here before. <laughs> I used to work on Wall Street back then. <laughs> the dot com boom. Yes. Well, you so, remember that then. You remember how everything was different. Remember how the rules were all different? Like, the rules were all different. We don't care how much money the companies make. Oh, it turns out that was important. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and then we got to 2007, 2008, as you know well too. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if anybody makes money, just sell them 18 houses. Like you can own as many houses as you want. You don't need, you don't need any in- cash in the bank. Income yeah. verification. Forget about it. We don't need any of that stuff. Turned out that wasn't right. So yeah, the old is still, the old is still in a lot of ways, the truth. Yes. Yes. And uh, yeah, automation is, is, is key again, because why should we rely on our willpower? Like mm-hmm. that's just an uphill battle. That's so exhausting. Kudos to our grandmothers that they could do it. But like you said, Emily, life is way too complex. And there's bigger and better things that we could be doing with our time and energy and our money. Well, well, and you even take that, you even take grandma's approach. There are some cool apps out there that do that now that create those envelopes, but they do it for the modern day. Um, uh, 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 there's a few of them. I know that the M- old envelope system is now envelopes with an M. Mm-hmm. There's also cube money that does it. There's a few different fintech companies that will create these envelopes, but does it today. And uh, so t- take the, that, that idea that was great for grandma that we're way too busy for now and uh, automate that as well. I, I, I do just want to tell you that um, <clears throat> when my husband and I, <clears throat> excuse me, when my husband and I were first married to, to get on the same page, we, we decided to try the envelope system with, uh, yeah. with cash. And I was telling my father, who was a financial planner about that. And he goes like, oh, how revolutionary and modern. <laughs> He's like, you know, that's how your great grandmother did things. <laughs> and uh, he, he was telling me that she actually, every time she tried to have a checking account, she overdrew it because she just couldn't get her head to wrap around it. Oh, she needed the envelopes. Funny. <laughs> That is funny. Yeah, I, I had my I, I had my envelope system when we were getting years ago, we were trying to get out of debt. And that's the only way I could get myself mm-hmm. to just do this thing, get in the envelope system. And I did it, but that, I'm done with it. <laughs> I'm yeah. done with that. So speaking about you've been on the and like I said, in the field so long, I wonder if you had to choose one thing that you see people are just not doing enough of, hopefully it's not the envelope system, maybe it is, but we, mm. that would really move the needle when it comes to building wealth. What, what, what would you say that is? We actually start the book here. I believe that, you know, in my, I was a financial planner 
planner for 16 years. And one thing that I would see people step over is I will do, I will do Y as soon as I'm done with X. Mm. In other words, I look at all of the things that I have one at a time where really I think we need to look at them all together and see how they bump up against each other. So we actually begin the book with this idea that, that writing down your goals isn't bad, it's directionally good, but it's far more valuable to do something that I call timelining your goals. And what that means is take an empty sheet of paper, draw yourself and anybody you're planning with is stick figures on one side, and then draw a line, which represents the rest of your life and put down your goals as if they're bags of money. So I have twins. At one point, I wanted to help them get through college. I had a financial independence date that I wanted. Maybe we wanted not for us, but some people want like a second home or what are some of the financial goals you have and put them all out together. And then you add, when you do that, you're able to ask yourself some really good questions. Yes. Number one is, how much do each of these things cost? So if I draw a line back to today, what does my budget have to look like today to make all of these work? And number, and what we find out very quickly for most of us is without the help of compounding interest, we can't get them all. Mm-hmm. So I can't wait because we know compounding interest is such, this, is such a powerful force. I can't wait five years to get out of debt before I start investing. I'm going to have to start putting money toward retirement sooner than that, or maybe toward kids' college sooner than that. Which brings up the second thing, what interest rate do I need to make this goal a reality? We have these ridiculous retirement, uh, or excuse me, risk assessment quizzes when Mm -hmm. we go work for somebody. And the question isn't, how much risk do I feel I should take? It's what type of risk do I need to take? That's the first thing I need to know. And then once I know whether I need to take risk or not, then I ask myself, am I comfortable with that? And do I need to change the goal or do I need to do something different with the amount, with the budget? You know, maybe I need to find a way to make more money or save more money. So I love the texture and all the values-based conversations we get into when we put all of these out on a timeline. Is this goal more important than that one? If I can't get both of them, which one do I focus on? If I, if I can get them all, am I thinking too small? Am I not thinking enough about my legacy? Uh, I, I love the idea of timeline your goals. The last thing I like that I'll say is that we've interviewed quite a few uh, neuroscientists talking about how the brain works mm-hmm. and the cool we are, we live in a visual world. And the second we put it out, instead of just having them in writing, we have them out visually against each other. Our subconscious brain also then begins working on these problems too. Wow. And you'll, and you'll find the same way that I do. when I have my best ideas in the shower, right? <laughs> like why now all of a sudden your brain will present to you some great ideas about solving some of these conflicts between your goals because you put it out visually. Yes. I love that idea. You know, in fact, I was just teaching, I teach a a program for women called God wants you to be rich. And just this week, about half an hour ago, I was sitting with my students. And before we can get to goals, I said, we got to talk about your values. Because Mm -hmm. once you start, we've already gotten clear on where you're standing, right? They know their financial picture. But now if we want to design a plan, we get, we got to make sure that that plan aligns with who you, the life that you actually want to live. And the numbers might be telling you that you're not living that life. Um, so we actually went through a similar exercise just this morning. I think you, you nailed it right there. The reason that so many people who make over $250,000 a year are crying about their money is not that they don't have enough. It's that their spending does not match their values. Exactly. And, they, and they know deep down they're wasting money, they're wasting resources, and they're wasting time. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and that gets to um, something that I have over, over, you know, my, a lifetime, I have come to realize um, the importance of intention in, mm-hmm. in any decision you make. And that's true of everything, but particularly with money, you know, it's, uh, it's very easy to spend money without intention to, to just kind of let it flow through your hands because, you know, you've got, um, an ATM fee here and an overdraft fee there. And so like that money is gone without any intention behind it. It's just gone. And so once you start thinking about like, I want to live my life with intention and I want to spend my money with intention so that it is supporting my values and doing the things that are most important to me. Um, You know, if it's uh, supporting the community, making sure that my family is well taken care of, if that is um, giving to charity, if that is, you know, whatever it is that's, uh, you know, continuing education, however, that that value um, is is best expressed in you um, being intentional about the way that you um, shape your finances and shape your life um, can lead to so much more satisfaction. Can we share, can we share a story about this from the book? Emily, Emily, by the way, has a fantastic story about how she, she thought she was spending money one way, but it turned out that she wasn't really spending money according to her values. And she learned this horrible lesson from that. If you don't mind. Oh, this is so embarrassing. Oh, it's painful. (laughs) So back in my early 20s, I was dating this guy who was not good enough for me. He was a total jabroni. And um, he and I ended up breaking up and uh, I cried. And just a few weeks later, my grandmother passed away. Um, And I was very close to my grandmother. She was, she was just a a wonderful, lovely woman. She was the family matriarch, you know, just, just, just a a lovely person. Um, And uh, also quite a, quite a forceful personality in a lot of ways. And so I had this idea that I wanted to remind myself to save my tears for things that mattered, you know, that I should not spend time like moping over jabronis who break up with me, who are not worth my time and save my tears for things that matter like my grandmother. And so I decided, and I know this is not, (laughs) I decided to get a tattoo of a teardrop on my my right shoulder. So funny. Okay. Which by the way, my grandmother would have been horrified by. I can only (laughs) imagine. What so, a great way to honor yeah. grandma by doing yeah. something that she would have hated. Something she would hate. Well, post Holocaust generation. No, no, no. This is just not the way to go. No. So um, I ended up going to a uh, tattoo parlor and, um, and I spent $150, which blew a huge hole in my early 20 something budget. Cause I think mm-hmm. I was 22 or 23. Um, so I was going to have to eat tuna fish and crackers and ramen for, uh, for, for a month because I, I took the money from my grocery budget and got a very stylized looking, um, uh, teardrop on my, on my, uh, shoulder. Um, now I've always been a very like decisive person. Like I make a decision, I go with it. I'm happy with the decision. 10 minutes after walking out of there, I was just like, what did I just do? Oh, but it gets better. It, it, by which he means it gets worse. (laughs) So a few months later, I'm watching a movie and I, I, I find out that teardrop tattoos have a very specific meaning among gang members, which is that it means that you killed someone. (laughs) 
So my teardrop tattoo seemed to say that I offed my grandma. (laughs) Oh my goodness. She literally killed her with the tattoo. I whacked grandma. (laughs) Now, here's the thing about, uh, about Ruthie is she also had a delightful sense of humor. So she would have laughed with me about this at the same time. She would have been like, I'm not happy. (laughs) This is pretty funny. Oh my gosh. What a story. (laughs) And so, um, what I have come to realize. And so like, it took me a long time to really, cause I was, I was ashamed of, of, of having made this decision and having gone through all of this. And, um, um, I, I, I came to realize that what I thought I was doing was, um, honoring my grandmother and honoring the, the how I felt about her. And that, um, I, there was a very specific thing that I was doing. I was kind of depriving myself because there was that, that $150 that I paid for the tattoo meant that I couldn't eat my normal, you know, produce and stuff for, for mm-hmm. a month. And so that like deprivation was, was something that felt good to me, wow. um, as a way of showing my love and that I had learned that, you know, it's important to honor you know, the people that you love, honor your elders. Um, and that was what I was trying to do. And, um, if I had been able to, um, if I had a little more self-knowledge as a, you know, 22, 23 year old, um, and, uh, (laughs) I think I needed to go through this to have the self-knowledge. Um, I would have, um, recognized, you know what, there are other ways that that could have honored grandma Ruthie in a way that she would have appreciated a little better, Mm -hmm. um, and could have, uh, helped me recognize that, um, you know, I loved her. I, I, I missed her dearly and that, um, I didn't necessarily have to, you know, go through something that was both financially and and physically painful (laughs) to prove it. Oh my gosh. This is too funny. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Now, Emily, you mentioned, I think you mentioned your father was a finance is a financial advisor. Joe, you worked, um, as a financial advisor for many years, this is often something that comes up for people. The there's still, we've got, we've come along far, but there's still a lot of like, I guess, confusion and, um, around what, what is a financial advisor and who should hire one, right? There's, there's these, there's these myths around, like that's only for the wealthy people. And it's not, you know, one day I'll get there kind of like, and, and, similar to I'll invest when I have money type of thing, right? Maybe you guys can help listeners debunk a little bit that myth or any others around hiring a financial professional. And and also tell us what are the things to look out for? Because this is so important. What are the clues to finding the right professional? Um, So I'll, I'll, go ahead and start my, because I, I grew up, um, in the, in the financial planning industry, I, I tend to have a pretty rosy view of it. Um, mm. which, uh, when you run into people from like the, uh, financial independence, retire early movements, um, they're, they're very much like, Oh no, you can do it. Do it yourself. DIY. Yeah. DIY. DIY it. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I feel like finding the right financial professional, um, is a little like when your kids are little and you're trying to find the right, um, uh, uh, care, care person for your child, you know, Mm -hmm. like you're still the parent, you're still the person who does all of the important stuff. Um, but you know, someone who can help out with, uh, with the things that you're not available to do or to, you know, give you, uh, room to do other things. Um, and so, and in similarly, just as, um, you want to find the exact right 
daycare or nanny or babysitter for your children. And you're going to be very diligent about finding someone who is going to take care of your children. Uh, you want to find a financial advisor who has the same with using the same kind of due diligence that you do looking for a nanny. Um, and that's something that I think um, because people feel intimidated by the process, they're often like, oh, I got a name from a friend and I just went with them because mm-hmm. like they don't know how to ask questions. They're afraid to, of they're, they're afraid of feeling like they don't know what's going on. They're afraid of, of being intimidated and all of those things. And so that's one of the things that I think is really helpful is to kind of recognize that this is a process where you're interviewing people um, to take care of something that is dear to you. And so you can take your time. You can interview lots of people. You can ask them lots of questions. Um, And so that's one aspect of it. And then the other is to recognize what their role is going to be which is, um, I like to say, it's like um, you are in the driver's seat and your financial advisor is is sitting shotgun and has the map. Mm-hmm. And so like you're capable of reading the map yourself, but they may know parts of the map that you're not familiar with. Uh, you know, there may be stuff that you just don't know. You don't know that route. I'm like, oh, and that's actually a really good route for you. Um, and they can direct you, but it's ultimately your decision. You're the one behind the wheel. And so thinking of it, um, those two aspects of um, finding a financial planner can really be helpful um, in letting people uh, understand um, what the role will be and how much power they have in finding the right one. Yes. And I think this is is a a very important message for everybody, but specifically for women, because there is, there is a tendency to just like, just delegate, somebody, somebody will take care of it. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't want to look at it. They know what they're doing. And we're saying, no, you're, it's still your money. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to take care of it better than you are. You know, mm-hmm. you're still, so, Joe, what's your take on this? Well, I love that. I love that analogy that it's still your money because one of my favorite uh, examples of somebody uh, being in control of their financial situation would be somebody who's the CEO of a company. And I love, if we use Mary Barra at General Motors, I think is a great example of a woman who is has kept this company, General Motors isn't the end all be all of companies, but she's kept them relevant. She's turned the ship. She's right in the conversation whenever you talk about anything going on in automotive. And there's certainly some exciting things happening with GM. But 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 let's be clear, Mary doesn't show up at work twice a year and go, Hey, uh, car people take care of this stuff. And cause you know, she's got all these VPs that handle all the pieces of a car. She, you know, I'll show up twice a year and you just tell me how it goes. No, mm-hmm. she goes to all the meetings. She knows everything about a car. And I think if you have advisors that take it away from you, you need to fire them. Those yes. are not who you want. You need to buy who makes you smarter. And certainly you should listen to podcasts like yours. You should, you should read, you should be up on all the latest stuff. And the advisor is looking for your blind spot, which is where I think the, we're constantly having this conversation, which is not the right question to ask. When you hear people say that you shouldn't have advisors, they couple that with you're smart enough to do this by yourself. Of course you are. Yes, you are smart. I'm, I'm smart enough to do it by myself. I have an advisor. My mm-hmm. advisors, by the way, and I have advisors in different areas of my life. Right. And my advisors are people that disagree with me. They, they look at the world differently than I do. 
if I have a growth mindset, I truly want to make sure that I'm running as fast as possible toward whatever my goals are. I want people to tell me where I'm messing up. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not about being smart enough. A, a financial advisor, somebody who you know, does this all day, every day and can definitely help me do it better, but they can't, they shouldn't take it from you. And I'll give you two things because when I was a financial planner for a long time, I saw a lot of bad financial planners. So let me give you two, number one, two, two pieces to kind of identify a bad planner. First one is very basic. If the advisor leads with product and not process, you got to run because there is no magic bullet. There is no magical thing that solves everything. And yet you have these people out there, you see them on TikTok videos all the time telling you about, this is fantastic for everybody. We should do it. There's no such thing. So they should start off with asking you questions about you. And certainly then they should have some credentials. They should be a certified financial planner. They should be what's called a fiduciary, which means that they have to work in your best interest, but they also should have a connection with you. And I'll tell you the second thing here, which is, If they don't have a connection with their staff, they will not have a connection with you. I used to go into a lot of different financial planning offices, and I'll tell you, every office I went into where the receptionist was bitter or mean or (laughs) just didn't have the time of day for me, that came right from the boss. Mm -hmm. That came from her or him, and the the financial advisor had the same mentality. Uh, Usually in an office where the advisor's wonderful, the support people are also wonderful because it all comes from that top person. So um, I'd, I'd use that as a quick clue. Third thing is if you end up walking into their office, I don't want them to have Jim Cramer on yelling at the TV. I don't want CNBC. I don't want, I want the travel channel, right? Their job is to settle me down and think long-term not to think about there's tons of stuff. We got to forget all that. Yeah. I love that. I have one more analogy, particularly that that's helpful for women, I think, um, in that um, your financial advisor can be kind of like your doula when you're having a baby, Mm. because your financial advisor cannot have the baby for you. Yes. And if they're trying to have the baby for you, there's a problem. That's a problem. (laughs) Um, But they are there to help um, help uh, smooth the uh, the the ups and downs that are that have you really worried. Um, they're there to, uh, work, um, uh, like be a, a liaison between you and, and the, um, like the professional team. Mm-hmm. So like the liaison with you and like the stock market and all of that. Um, and to, uh, help you, um, remember what's important to you when, uh, tempers are running high, when, when you're scared, when you're feeling greedy, whatever it is, just as your doula is there to help you calm down and remember that you wanted a non-medicated birth. Yes. <laughs> you're like, no, I really want an epidural now. <laughs> Change my mind. No. Well, and can we circle back for a second on what Emily said at the beginning? Cause I don't want people to lose this. It, great advisors to some degree are still salespeople. Even mm-hmm. if they, they will tell you when I was an advisor, I would tell you if I didn't think it was a fit, but if I thought it was a fit, my job is to sell you on the fact that it's a fit, right? So we're all good at this, at this presentation about getting you to come on board. That's why no matter how good a fit the first one is, I think it's essential. You got to talk to three, four, five different people because that's only when you're going to start seeing the differences between them. And especially if you've never met with somebody before. I mean, I remember people that I worked with great. I knew they were going to be a fit, but I still felt horrible when I knew the only person they met with was me. Mm-hmm. They, you really should meet with, with a few people before you make that decision. 
Yes. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. So we are a bunch of money nerds in the room. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm only a money nerd, honestly, because I wasn't a money nerd when I should have, and I made my share of financial mistakes. What are some of the financial mistakes or the hard knocks that you've received along the day? Because I can only, I imagine that even savvy money people like yourselves, you have something hiding in the closet. So share with us. Is it, is it time for mine then, Emily? Uh, yeah, I think it's time for your embarrassing <laughs> okay. story. Yeah. Yeah. So mine was, you know, I was a financial disaster. In fact, even when I became a financial planner, I was a financial disaster giving other people advice when I wasn't taking any of my own advice. I was just, oh, I was horrible. But that all started in college and our family, we didn't talk about money. Whenever there were money conversations going on, my parents would have my brother, sister, and I leave the room. You couldn't, you did not talk about money at our house. Uh, And so I got to college and I, I, I was at the Citadel, the military college of South Carolina at the time that I was there. Cause I'm an old guy. It was all men. And, uh, I walk into Mark Clark hall, the, the, uh, the, the student union. And there was something going on then that, that credit card companies don't have anymore. There was a table for the American express card. Now they found ways (laughs) (laughs) and a bunch of other cards in my day. (laughs) They have found ways around that, but they're not allowed to have the table anymore. So if you're younger and you didn't have that, well, lucky you, but they still will find a way to get to you. But anyway, uh, there was a long line of people waiting to get into debt. Right. And I had no, I, I don't remember if it was for a stadium blanket or a Frisbee or something, but I stood in that line. I signed up for a card when it said, how much money do you make? I'm in a military college. I can't, I can't have a job. There's no job I can have. There's nothing I can do. Zero. I have no income, no nothing. Well, of course, three weeks later, guess what happens? This beautiful green credit card comes. <laughs> I've never, I've never been allowed to make the small mistakes as a kid right. that some people make. I've never held on to more than maybe $20 at a time. And now I have a credit card, which, you know, the American Express card. You got to pay it off every month. I didn't know that. And then the second thing is there's really no limit. So the first time we get leave, we go to North Charleston where there's this mall and there's six of us. And we go to this high-end restaurant that you may have heard of. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. It was called Ruby Tuesday. No. Okay. This very high-end place. They had a salad <laughs> bar and everything. And, uh, and so the bill comes and there's six of us at the table. And of course me wanting to be everybody's buddy. I raised my card in the air and I said, I got this. This is all on me. So I pick up everybody's lunch. Then I walk down to the other end of the mall and I go to, of course, the most expensive store because I can't go to the second most expensive. I go to Nordstrom and uh, there is this beautiful, beautiful sweater. And this is 1986. So it was Duran Duran beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like this was just the Paisley design. And I have it in the other room. I should have brought it so I could show you. Yeah. (laughs) Cause I got to remember what a, what an idiot I was. I love that you still have it. Yeah. Just, just to remember, but, but does if you it saw still it, fit? If you, <laughs> that's a whole different, that's thing. the question. No, I would have burned it. <laughs> whole different thing. But of course I bought that once I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, like it's cold two days there. And then the second thing is I'm in a military college. I got to wear a uniform. What am I going to do with the sweater? But I bought it. So, of course, I'm feeling good because I've got all these new friends that I bought them lunch. I got this cool clothing I can't wear. Then about a month later, this weird thing happens. I walk to the mail and there's a letter for me. It's from American Express. How cool is this? I open it up. And, of course, I owe them a bunch of cash. 
that you didn't I, have. <laughs> well, and I never thought of. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Oh, there's a second piece to this. I thought I'd just have a good time. So I, uh, so I, I did what any sane person would do. I called my mom mm-hmm. and I said, mom, we have a problem. And mom mm-hmm. said, no, you have a problem. And the bad news is then uh, two months later, my credit was destroyed. The card was gone. And I spent the next summer coming up with uh, probably $400 to pay off a collection agency. And uh, that was that was a lesson, though, that really started started things on this bad trail of debt as I tried to learn my own way, which finally one day I woke up this, by the way, I got married. I had young twins. I'm a financial planner. I'm in an old rusted out minivan and I ran out of gas on my way home from a meeting. And I realized that I borrowed money from every line of credit I had. I borrowed money from all all my relatives. Nobody was going to give me any more money. And I had no cash to get home. And I'm, I go to the, to the, the seat to this old Aerostar van and I'm looking for money and I found 85 cents and I walk, this is a real old guy. Sorry. I walk a mile to this, uh, to this (laughs) marathon station as mobile station where the dude doesn't want to loan me the plastic gas tank because he's afraid I'm going to steal it. Oh my gosh. He, he thinks I'm going to take it. So I, finally he lets me have it. I walk back to my car and I remember as I'm putting gas in this car, this is when I cried about money, by the way, because I realized that things had to get better, but, but better than that, I had to quit looking for short-term fixes because initially when I was finding my way out, I would always try to find a short-term fix. And I had to build a foundation. So I had to put money in a bank account, even though I had debt, I had to stop using credit. Then I use credit now, but now I understand how dangerous it can be. Uh, I surrounded myself with much smarter people that were teachers, even though I was teaching people, which would horrify people that there were people like me doing that. I surrounded myself with smart people. And then it was amazing how quickly I was able to turn the boat around. Uh, within five years, I went from very bad financial instability and not knowing what side was up to very much having a solid net worth that was going north in a hurry. And it, and it wasn't quick fixes. It was the tried and true foundation. Yeah, we go full back full circle to that first initial um, question. I love that. Now you mentioned, Joe, that you were married at this point, and so often making these changes, evidently, if we're in a committed relationship, you know, it takes two to tango, right? Uh, and this is where a lot of people bump into trouble because not only have do we carry our baggage with money and we haven't learned how to talk about money and understand what our own mindset about money and have how how what why why we behave a certain way then we bring somebody else into this and we don't even know how to talk to them and let alone understand them right so how were you and your wife able to bridge this because that's also a big piece that you didn't mention um so that that could come to fruition within that short amount of time. I think this is an important component. The marriage no, this, part. this is huge. And actually uh, uh, we, we talk about this as well in our uh, section on budgeting, because I believe that budgeting is less about having the right spreadsheet than if you're budgeting with somebody else to having the right conversations. Yes. And, and Cheryl and I, with young kids, we had different financial priorities and she, 
you know, in, in a lot of families that I worked with, one person knew where every dime was and the other person was in what I called fantasy land. Mm -hmm. And I was so busy working with other people's money. I was the one in fantasy land. I was the money geek and I was totally in fantasy land about my money. And I'll give you an example. Cheryl and I would both come home one day with important stuff for the family. I would come home and she has bags of clothes, school clothes for the kids. And, and I had the latest video game, both important for the family, hugely important. And we'd have these fights, right? right. About them. And then we realized that for us, while I like apps as much as the next person, we needed to have a, a conversation that had no blaming, not having one person drag the other one to the table. That was fun. So we, Cheryl and I have a weekly meeting. It's 20 minutes long. We've been doing it now forever and we love it. It's a weekly meeting. It's 20 minutes long. We set a timer at 20 minutes. It can't go longer. It's either involves pancakes or wine, depending on what time of day it is. You can choose if it's middle of the day, maybe doing both. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> you do. What, what do pancake? It. What wine do you uh, pair with pancakes? So is it a red or a white? <laughs> That's right. It had to be a sweet white, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would kind of have to be, I think. But yeah, but 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 at the and and the meeting is very simple. We uh, uh we look through our transactions from the week before, mm -hmm. and we just talk through what we spent money on the week before, and then we look at the next week's expenses together, and talk about what priorities we have that are coming up. And I'll tell you, we usually stop there. But what happens that's amazing is every once in a while we'll miss that meeting. And when we miss it, we don't have other conversations during the week and bad things happen. If we have that meeting that's 20 minutes long, we end up having these organic money conversations all week long. And then we get into the big stuff later, you know, like what, what are we thinking about for retirement or, you know, do we, what, what, the, the big, huge, deeper financial conversations, those come much more readily when we have yeah. that 20 minute meeting. So yeah, the, the 20 minute meeting solved the, the crisis that we were having in my relationship. Yeah. I, 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 I experienced the same thing. We have our weekly money dates, 30 minutes and it's changed everything. Yeah, really. It makes a huge difference because a lot of people feel like they always tell me like, Oh, but what if an emergency comes up during the week between, and I say, when you're having these weekly dates or whatever you want to call them, you're going to find that less things end up being an emergency. It's just like, we're all putting out fires, but we're putting out fires because we're not in touch with our cash flow. We're not in touch mm -hmm. as a couple with how things are moving. But if we're meeting every week and we know what's coming up and what, what we did and what's coming up, then we are hardly, we, you know, things might come up that feel like an yeah. emergency, but it's less and less. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm so also it, thinking that when they, when they come up, when they do come up, they don't feel like an emergency because yes. you're talking to each other. Exactly. Exactly. Emily, are you a fan of the money date? Um, so my husband and I don't exactly have a uh, kind of a regular weekly money date. We, we, uh, aim for once a month. And, uh, mm -hmm. some of that comes from the fact that, uh, I am like a dyed in the wool money nerd. I was as a small child, like there, there are stories of me, like, taking everything out of my piggy bank, counting all the money and putting it back in and then just oh kind of rubbing my hands. <laughs> so <laughs> that was me. Um, and so, and I've always been that way. I've also always been someone who likes tracking things, not mm -hmm. just money, but I like, I just like to track things. 
So, um, so I have always been pretty on top of my finances, um, even when I was making very little money. So my husband uh, is not a tracker, but he's very frugal. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of ways, we meshed really well, where things were difficult was um, where we had different values. Um, So I can remember there was... um, uh, I was going to a cousin's wedding and I had bought new shoes for it, which, and they weren't super expensive, but they were like $80 shoes that were, I was only going to wear once. And and my husband was just like, why, right. why? <laughs> um, so what I found that was really helpful to get us both on the same page on those value discussions and, and make sure that, that we are looking forward and, you know, uh, spending with intention um, was it was by accident. Actually, we were in um, in the car on a road trip. I don't remember where we were driving, but we had several hours ahead of us. And so we started like, you know, top 10 vacation destinations go. And so, you know, back and forth, we're each saying our, our top 10. And um, he, his number one was uh, Le Mans in France, which is where there is a 24 hour automotive race. Because he's an automotive engineer. He's very much a grease monkey engine geek. Um, and I was just like, I can get down with going to France. I am okay <laughs> with that plan. And so like, we were just talking about it and having a great time on our, our road trip. But when we got home about a week later, I said, why don't we start putting $75 or hundred dollars a month away in a savings account to go to France. And he's like, uh, okay. And so we started, we started doing that. Um, and uh, that was something that, you know, allowed us to, to like build up some money to do something that we both really wanted to do. Yeah. And then by doing that and then automating it, that kind of showed him like the power of a lot of the stuff that I'd been telling him about that. He was just like, I don't know if that'll work. Um, and that like, you know, allowed us to really start automating all kinds of things. Um, so like, for instance, we set aside um, money every month to go towards our kids um, summer camp, because, you know, we, it's really important to us that they go to Jewish day camp. And then this year, my 11 year old for the first time is going to go to sleepaway camp. And that's an expense that can be really it difficult. Is. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, and, and you have so- to plan for it, right? Like anything that's important to you. Yes. And so knowing that it's important to us and that we can not only um, do we plan for it and we've got the money for it, but we, um, by planning for it, we can pay for it all at once and get a little bit of a discount. Um, and, and so doing things like that, we also, we set um, $350 aside every month to go towards a new car. So it's like, kind of like um, we pay ourselves a car loan. Um, and so that money is there for, if we need to, to buy a new car, we also use it for, if there's any major, um, um, work that needs to be done on either of our cars. Um, and so, and that all started because we had that conversation in the car. And so that's, that's one of the things that I think is really, um, can be very helpful, um, particularly in those, those relationships where you get one money geek and one person who just doesn't really pay much attention is to like, start with the fun stuff, you know, start with the dream. Yeah. Start with the big dreams. Don't start with the, like, how are we going to deprive ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and cajoling does not work. No. Right. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Definitely. I'm curious about giving because, you know, normative personal finance, you know, usually we know there's four ways we can allocate our money. We, you know, we pay ourselves first, we save, we invest, 
we spend and then we give right with whatever's left over. But, you know, we we often talk in the show that there's a Jewish financial paradigm, as I like to call it, where there is a concept of giving first or giving a minimum of 10 percent of your after tax income to to charity. And to some people, that's really, really hard because actually 10 percent is a pretty hefty amount. Um, And for some others, they they see this, the benefits, um, not just from a spiritual feel good perspective, and I feel more abundant, but they actually see that it doesn't take away from their money. Um, people see that it actually benefits them financially. Um, what have you guys seen in terms of any benefits of giving, um, not in a random way, but rather, like I said, in a more systematic and disciplined mm-hmm. way? I have uh, said for a long time, this will be new to Emily. I've said for a long time, this is probably my only book. <laughs> like this is the book, but I have an idea for my next book. Okay. Let, let, let's, let's, let's hash well, it out. Let's well, talk no, about it. Yes. And, my, it, it, and it is this idea that, that it's, it's from gratitude to wealth. Yes. B- because I find that the more that I give, the, the wealthier, not just my, my pocketbook is, or my investments are the wealthier my life is. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when we don't start with the give first mentality, with a service mentality, we really deprive ourselves of a lot of that. A hundred percent. So I think, well, I'm with you that for some people saving 10% of what you have is incredibly difficult. I think if you build that in and you also realize that that um, that being a giver can also help you receive a lot more mm-hmm. uh, is amazing. I feel very lucky. We interviewed on Stacking Benjamins, Daniel Lamar, who is the head of uh, Cirque du Soleil for a number of years. And, and, and he realized that early on in his career that he's he even he even phrased it. He goes, listen, don't even think of yourself as a giver. He goes, I feel bad for takers in the universe because I never give them anything. Yeah. He goes, but when somebody gives and gives and gives, he owes his career, by the way, from Cirque, with Cirque du Soleil, because early, when the circus was struggling, he was in a different job and he helped out the founder of Cirque du Soleil. At that time, the circus wasn't very big. Later on, when the circus was huge, huge. He wanted to bring on Daniel Lamar, even though they already had contracts in place and, and, and other people involved. And he said that, you know, even if you're a taker, realize that giving first is pretty good. Like if you want to take more, which is not the way to look at it at all. Mm-hmm. But, I th- but, but I seriously think that the more gratitude I have, the more that I give, the easier life just seems to be. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, I want, I really loved um, Marie Kondo, the, the um, life-changing magic of tidying up. Um, <laughs> the, there was a lot in there that really resonated with me. And one of them was how she anthropomorphized your things. Um, so like when she says, like, ask your, you know, thank your sweater that you're giving away. Thank your stuff. Yes. Thank yes. your stuff. And uh, the reason I liked it was because it took me out of the equation. So if there's a sweater that I haven't fit into since before my kids were born and I hold on to it because I love it that is centering me mm-hmm. where, and so if I, if I recognize the sweater wants to be worn, it's sad that it's sitting in my closet and not being worn. And so I recognize, Oh, I can gift it elsewhere. And so I use that um, to think about my money as well. What does my money want? And that my money will tell me like it, it, it wants, it wants to grow for me and it really wants to help others. 
Like mm-hmm. it doesn't want to be um, frittered away on, on things I don't need. It doesn't want to be, um, you know, like saved for no reason, you know, just to, 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 to be hoarded. It wants to make me proud. And so, and it can make me proud in two very distinct ways. One is by helping the community, by, um, by giving back, by, um, ensuring that people, um, feel, you know, have what they need and feel loved and comforted and, and, and welcome and all of the things that, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I feel like is, is just a big part of, um, what I love about being Jewish, you know, mm-hmm. just the, 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 that sense of welcoming. And then, um, and that is, uh, it helps remind me that, um, I I'm, I'm not in the center of this equation. And so like the, and so I, I, it's something that I rec- recommend, um, for, for folks who have some of the limiting beliefs that like, if I give money away, I'm not going to have enough. Um, if you start thinking like, you know, what does my money want? Um, and, and, you know, asking your money, where, where do you want to go? Uh, mm-hmm. your money is going to tell you that, um, you know, it wants you to have faith in it, <laughs> that it will come back to you, even if you are giving it away. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we go back to that, to, to that, that I'm not, I'm not an independent entity here. And I've been put here for a reason, right? What, mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever you believe, right? But there's a reason that God or the universe is, is, is has told has allowed you to be here today with all your talents and everything that you bring to the table. And you're getting this resource so that you can utilize it not only to serve your needs, that's very important, take care of yourself, but also to be of service to others. It's such an important paradigm shift. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, let's wrap it up with what I like to call Jewish money matters, fill in the blanks. So this is a part of the show, I'll give you an open ended statement. And we'll finish it with the first thing that comes to mind. All right. Deal. Okay. And you guys could take it wherever, you know, whoever wants to go first. Okay. When I give tzedakah or charity, I'd like to give to, what are we a fan of? Uh, I love things for helping refugees. I love mm. um, giving to, um, uh, giving locally for, um, for uh, food, um, a food insecurity um, here in Milwaukee, just because we can see what, what's going on. Um, and I love giving um, for things that, that help the environment. Um, those, those tend to be my focuses. What about you, Joe? I love to give in my local community. I'm, uh, I'm on the board of a group called Partnership for the Pathway that builds walking trails and safe routes to school for kids. Wow. When I first moved here to Texarkana 12 years ago, we didn't have any, we didn't have any sidewalks uh, in a lot of the place. Around schools, it was crazy. And I, I found a group that was working to build those. And today we have a bunch of them. So I give time and money there. That's my biggest passion. Nice. I'd, lo- I'd love to make more money because... Uh, I see it as a kind of um, positive energy. So um, if more money is flowing in towards me, that means I have more energy that I can flow out to things that I, that, um, I want. And so some of that is, is uh, like literally I'll be able to give more, but it also means that I'll be able to um, have more like actual energy because I can offload some things because I can afford to, you know, hire someone to help clean the house, that sort yes. of thing. Yes. And we often forget that, right? The money allows mm-hmm. us to have more impact. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I can hire somebody. That means I'm helping her feed mm-hmm. her family and put her kids through school. I mean, it mm-hmm. just needs to flow in that way. 
It's amazing. What about you, Joe? I'd love to make more money because. No, that's exactly where I was headed because, and, and I'm in a coaching group and another guy in our group said his number one focus right now is any decision that's $25 or less. He, he wants to offload it to somebody else. And, and I feel like that's where I would have the most impact dealing with those bigger, bigger decisions, bigger problems. And also often I don't, I don't get to them because I'm dealing with some of these small things. So mm-hmm. if I can use it to delegate more stuff to more people, um, that's fantastic. Yes. Something I wish I'd learn about money growing up is. Hmm. I've got mine. Cause that, I wish, yeah, that that uh, sweater wasn't really worth it. Um, I I wish I had uh, I'd had more open conversations. Um, I, yeah. I I learned a lot um, growing up, just kind of listening to my dad talk about money, um, and so I just kind of picked things up. But uh, I I definitely had kind of a child's understanding of things um, for a lot of it and had to revisit. So I I wish that money had been talked about more than talked at me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, going to Joe's uh, meetings, you know, at least in our household, like my, our children know that it's something that we do regularly. Like like Mm -hmm. we actually sit and talk about our money and we make Mm -hmm. decisions. Oh, whenever they want something that, you know, requires some thinking, We'll get to it because your father and I have to discuss it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, uh, and it's important for them to see, unlike what maybe you saw at home, Joe, and which I saw too, where it was like completely taboo and it wasn't talked about. So tell us something I wish I'd learned about money growing up. Oh, you told us the sweater. I did. Yes. Yes. But, well, but I will say this to your point, you know, my kids had a completely different experience. We invited our kids often to those 20 minute meetings. Um, I also, because, you know, dad and mom can tell kids things and they roll their eyes. Yes. I was able to introduce them to people that were younger and uh, were in our space that mm. they read. Uh, I introduced them to Aaron Lowry at Broke Millennial oh, and cool. yeah. introduced them to Scott Trench with Bigger Pockets, who's got a great book called Set for Life. And and uh, now they're 26. My daughter doesn't make a lot of money, but she's incredibly frugal and she has money saved and no debt. My son works for Microsoft as an engineer now and is at 26 has 11 rental houses. Wow. And it's, and it's awesome. It's all him. It's not dad. Like I did not pitch in at all, except to give him the knowledge of where to look. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Guys, money, spiritual or physical? So Both. spiritual. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> do you want to, do you want to elaborate Joe? Well, I just think it's incredibly spiritual because I think it's much more about your values and your life and, and, uh, without, without adding the spiritualness to money, it's nothing. It's a piece of paper. Yeah. We bring value to it. So how we bring value, I mean, could be a very spiritual thing or an ugly thing. So I'm going to go spiritual because I'm an optimist. Love that. <laughs> Emily, what about you? Uh, both. Um, and that's, uh, so I, I definitely agree. Like money doesn't actually exist. It's a, it's a delusion we all share. Um, but, uh, and so, and because you, you, you can't, you can't eat it. You can't build a house out of it. You can't wear it unless, I don't know, you're Lady Gaga or something. Um, <laughs> You know, and you can't even spend it in a place uh, where it's not accepted as legal tender. Um, it's just this idea we all share and it's va- it has value because we all uh, assign it value. But even though it is like this amorphous thing, it does have physical effects um, mm-hmm. and very much on well, on both ends, like on, um, uh, on the, the, the income uh, per- 
spectrum where you don't have much money is a physical thing because getting more improves your physical life. Right. Um, and then even on the, the other end, so like where, where, where you have quite a bit of money, the, the, it is a physical thing because it allows you to, um, to have better healthcare, better access to, you know, sleep to like the, the things that are like the very basics of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. So, um, so while it is a spiritual thing, um, because we're humans and we're imperfect, we have made it physical and it has these physical manifestations that uh, can be um, very negative, unfortunately. And it's our job to like work to make it more spiritual so that everyone has what they need to, 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 you know, live the, their life of purpose. I know it's your show, Yale, but I'm so curious where you come down on that. I think both. I think both, um, just like our, like us humans, we are both spiritual and physical and we can't separate one from the other. So I think it's the same. Um, and, um, yeah, definitely both. Uh, again, it's not, it's not a physical thing because everything has an inherent spirituality. And like you said, Joe, like that's how we use it. That's how we elevate it. Like there's so, so much spirituality, but again, we have to feed people, right? So it does so much good in the physical world. So it's both. We can't step. We are both like physicality yeah. is spirituality. It just depends on how you use it. Yeah. Yes. All right. Something I splurge on unapologetically is uh, not office, ugly sweaters, please. Office supplies. Are you I, serious? Oh my God. <laughs> I, she totally does. I love like I have. A, well, I live by the, the code that she who dies with the most blank notebooks wins. <laughs> What would Marie Kondo say about this? I know it's, um, I have, I, one of the things that I've tried to do is, is, uh, get less precious about using my nice, uh, um, office supplies. So like I, I, I used to like, I'd buy this beautiful notebook and I'd never use it cause it's too nice to use. And now it's just like, that's ridiculous. I, I yes. love it. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to use it. What but, would your um, notebook I, want, Emily? What would the notebook want? I, exactly. The notebook wants yes. to be written and yes. drawn in. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, but that's, uh, it's just, it's a joke in our house that like, I'm not allowed to go to Staples by myself. (laughs) It's become a joke with a writing partner too. Yeah, that too. Yes. Joe, what about you? Oh, uh, anybody who knows me well knows, uh, I love getting groups of people together and playing board games. Like, oh, you know, fun. video games are fine, but sitting around a table and, and having a shared experience of board games. So I have a lot of board games. Wow. How fun. All right. Spender or saver? Who wants to go first? I'm a saver. And I'm yeah, a- we could tell Emily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guess which one I am. I am. I am totally a spender. <laughs> yes. And I've set things up so that, uh, so that I just don't like, I don't have yeah. money in my wallet. I make sure that uh, money goes to the right place first and then I spend it. But yeah, I'm definitely a spender. Yeah, same here. I've had to train myself and automate everything out of sight, out of mind. It's doing yes. what it needs to do, what I want it to do so that I don't have to rely on willpower. All right. <laughs> Today, I'm most grateful for. Uh, my family. I have. Um, so my my husband is um, an automotive engineer. So we are very different um, and uh uh, very much kind of an opposites attract. Uh, he used to say that he was in charge of numbers and things and I'm in charge of words and stuff. Um, <laughs> so, um, but uh, we complement each other in such a lovely way and he gets me. Um, 
And uh, together we have uh, two beautiful boys, an 11 year old and an eight year old who are hilarious and uh, just uh, so sweet and um, just lovely, lovely to be with. And uh, I, I am grateful every day for, for all of them. Joe, today I'm most grateful for. Yeah, I won't try to out family Emily because that's going to be, you know, what I'm very grateful for is that, uh, you know, after being a financial planner, this is kind of my second career being in mm-hmm. financial media. And, and I'm grateful that I'm surrounded by smart people who are all trying to generally go in the same direction. And if I'm laughing all day, like my life is going the way it should be going. And if I'm not laughing, things aren't going great. So to have a job, quote job, where <laughs> where I, I laugh for a living is just, you know, pinch me. That's That's so amazing. Yeah. This last one might feel like a trick question. It's not, guys. Take it wherever you want to take it. Finally, I am Emily Guy Birkin, and I believe Jewish money matters because... Hashem wants us to be our best selves Mm. and money is one of the tools that we can use to not only be our best selves, but help others be their best selves. Indeed. Beautiful. Joe, how about you? I think Jewish money matters because leading with your values matters. I think it's the equation of solving the money problem. Don't begin with what's hot or what's now. Think about what you value and yeah. Yes. And everything else falls into place if we lead with that. Beautiful. Joel and Emily, you guys are so fun. I'm so excited for the new book. I think this is going to be, I know it, revolutionary. Thank you so much for coming on the show. (laughs) Tell us where we can find you. You're both super prolific. So I know there's a lot of places we can be in touch. Uh, you can reach me at my website, emilyguyberkin.com. Um, there you can, uh, there's links to all five of my books, the four previous, um, before Joe and I worked together and, uh, stacked your super serious guide to modern money management. Um, and then you can also, um, find me on Twitter. Um, my, uh, uh handle is at Emily Guy Birkin. Um, I love being on Twitter. I'm on there way too much. I also, I love being a part of Twitter or <laughs> Jewish Twitter. Um, there's there's a lot of wonderful stuff on there that is just so I'm, I'm funny. Not there. <laughs> um, so and that's uh, um, so I, I I I love saying hello to people there, um, and uh, I'm always just interested to see what people have to say um, on Twitter. And um, so yeah, there's those are the best places to reach me. And uh, we are taking the show on the road, so you can come mm-hmm. hang out with us uh, beginning uh, March first through the end of June. We're going to forty. 40- one cities, I think. StackyBenjamins.com slash stacked is the uh, book tour. But even if you're not going to buy our book, just come hang out with a bunch of like-minded people and we'll introduce you to many people in your area that are that are of a like mindset. So we hope we get to meet a lot of people. We'll laugh Amazing. a lot. We're, yes. we're, we're going to have we fun. Yeah. This is, this, is, this is not a like yes. book tour. This is going to be a fun book tour. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I'm and then looking re- forward. Yeah. And then Reliable, you can find me every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the Stacking Benjamin Show. We call it the greatest money show on earth because it's a circus. It is. <laughs> it is a circus. We have a lot of fun. I know you do. The book is Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management, and you can find it anywhere. And stay tuned, guys, and go check out that book in the book store. I'll be there in Houston. Thank you, Joe and Emily. This was such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. 
Thanks to Joe Salcihai and Emily Guy Birkin for stopping by. The book is Stacked: Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management, and you can get it on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Be sure to check out the Stacking Benjamins podcast to get more of Joe. And if you're on Twitter, I have a feeling you'll want to be following Emily. I am so blessed that I get to bring you these conversations, and I get to learn every week as I try to bring the best in the personal finance space to you, my wonderful audience. This was awesome, wasn't it? If you enjoyed it, please hit that. Subscribe or follow button so that you never miss an episode of Jewish Money Matters. And also, as I said last week, I have an audience survey going on right now, and I really want you to be a part of it. It is so crucial for me to understand who my audience is, so that I can continue to serve you in the best way possible. So take a few minutes; it really doesn't take long. And fill out that survey at yaeltrush.com/forward/slash/survey. I will keep the survey open this week and close it by the end of the week, and start hopefully gathering amazing. Data. Additionally, if you have questions, you can send them via email at yael at yaeltrush.com, DM me or on Instagram at yaeltrush, or send a WhatsApp to 832-317-6778, and I will answer those questions here on the show. Not too late to send those questions in for this week. So looking forward to being here on Friday. Have an awesome week. <music>